Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, Omar, I'm Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petrero Medical, and this is another episode of Hills and Valleys. This time we have Dr. Andrew J. Sauer, who is the Chief of Heart Failure Therapies Division over at the University of Kansas Health System, and at the time of this recording, he was also the Medical Director for the Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant uh, Division for KU, which he had started. He recently just passed the leadership torch um, to Dr. Andrija Vidic, who came from Advent Orlando. Hopefully we can have him on the program as well. And of course he did it in a very, um, very respectful way uh, in, in, you know, in, in announcing it on LinkedIn and welcoming Dr. Uh, Vidic. So this episode really touches on some sensitive topics for physicians, and it's more specifically around what does success mean, right? How do we define it? Because physicians, uh, many of whom are often chasing more publications, uh, more grant money, more accolades, and really burn themselves out, and often miss the opportunity for fulfillment um, in their personal lives as spouses, as, as parents, as leaders in the community. And so Dr. Sauer touches on this and he caught my eye early on LinkedIn because he would post these incredibly vulnerable and inspiring posts about life as a young physician uh, who is by all means and all uh, measures uh, possible incredibly successful. But he touches upon his trials and tribulations and often failures when it comes to being a physician, a father, a husband, um, and he goes into that. So let me give you a little background on Dr. Sauer. He is a practicing cardiologist and associate professor at the University of Kansas Health System. Now, graduating with a medical degree with distinction and research from the University of Rochester, he completed his training in academic internal medicine, um, MGH, board and student at MIT, Harvard Medical School, and cardiovascular medicine at Northwestern University. And at the very young age of 33, he actually was recruited to the University of Kansas to co-found and grow an innovative contemporary heart failure, VAD, and heart transplant program. And while serving as the inaugural director from 2015 to 2020, the comprehensive heart failure and transplant patient survival rates rose to among the highest in the nation with 100% heart transplant patient survival for consecutive years, 2016 to 2020, SRTR, and VAD implant nation leading, reducing length of stay from 2017 to 2020 per, per visit. Now, he also helped his team innovate a high volume uh, and pioneering uh, telehealth uh, remote monitoring program while earning repeated team awards, including the AHA GWTGHF Gold Plus Award, the honor roll status. And he also co-led KU to become the first cardiovascular program in the nation to receive the TJC Comprehensive Cardiac Center certification. And as an expert in heart failure therapies, he has authored numerous articles uh, accumulating thousands of citations. And I've, I've looked this up and it's often funny how many times uh, I read an, uh, uh, a heart failure a therapy protocol or, or, or article in it, and he's cited in it. And so his works has been presented at the international scientific sessions such as AHA, ACC, HFSA, uh, 
a lot, <laughs> a lot of them. And he's also served as a national or global steering mem uh, committee member for innovations and investigations, partnering with great companies such as Medtronic, Boston Scientific, Abbott, Amgen, and many others. So hearing an episode like this with somebody who has such a long list of accomplishments at such a young age speak mainly about the vulnerabilities of being a physician, what it means to be brave, what it means to really put yourself out there and understand what it means to be fulfilled in this life aside from going for those accolades in our career is something I think everyone can take a lot from, not only physicians. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this really hard-hitting, powerful interview with Dr. Andrew J. Sauer. Hey everyone, this is Omar M. Khatib, uh, Director of Growth over Patron Medical. We have another fantastic uh, guest joining us. I've been really blessed this, this month because I feel like I'm getting, you know, really all-star people uh, on our show to sort of share their uh, stories from the field in leadership and healthcare. We recently had uh, Kevin Mahoney, who is the CEO of Penn Medicine, on. And today we have Dr. Andrew Sauer. Uh, Dr. Sauer comes from us uh, from KU. He is their uh, division chief for heart transplantation and heart failure. And I know that I didn't get that completely right, but Dr. Sauer, thanks for joining us. Can you give the audience a little background on, on who you are and, and what you do at KU? Thanks again for, for the opportunity to talk today. Um, I'm a heart failure cardiologist. I focus on heart failure as a disease exclusively. Uh, I grew up in the Heartland in Nebraska, uh, moved east for some of my training in upstate New York and then out to Boston and then spent some time in Chicago and uh, ultimately was recruited here shortly after training in my first year on faculty at Northwestern. And uh, it was sort of a crazy idea, you know, come here to Kansas and, you know, build a comprehensive heart failure, VAD, uh, ventricular assist device uh, and heart transplant program. And uh, where we are today is, you know, we're 89 transplants from the beginning about four years ago. We're over 150 LVADs, uh, and we have really some of the really the most remarkable outcomes in, in our region and certainly contesting uh, to say the same for the country. And uh, we've grown and we've built a program that includes, you know, 15,000 heart flare encounters uh, in 10 locations. We uh, have grown to really embrace telemedicine and remote monitoring uh, technologies and innovations in the ICU space. And I, it's just, it's just fun to talk about our mission and what we're doing here. So I'm just uh, fortunate to be able to call myself one of the leaders that's been um, part of this process. Absolutely. You know, and I got to say, you know, I, I, you know, because of my role at Petro, I interact with a lot of hospitals, top institutions all over the world. And I was really impressed because there were, and I don't want to get into the details of it, but there are people I spoke with at Kansas that there are certain clinical uh, uh, initiatives you, you guys have started. There are operational uh, and technology initiatives you started. And I, when I would check with some of these other hospitals I speak of, where top 10, top five, a lot of them have not. So, you know, I've really been impressed with the spirit and culture at KU. And you're a very humble guy, but I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. And I, I would like to start, start this because we do have a lot of uh, young people listening to it, a lot of medical students. So I, I, I noticed something that is very rare, which is you became the chief of this division at, I believe, age 33, correct? Is that, am I correct in this? At? Yeah. So the only other person who I know who've accomplished something at, at, at that caliber was uh, decades ago when Ben Carson uh, uh, became the first uh, or the youngest chief of a division 
uh, for neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. So you don't hear that very often, especially for a, a large program like heart transplantation and, and heart failure for the audience. That's one of the most uh, prestigious and important programs in the hospital, aside from getting the best in the world to do that. It's obviously something that uh, operationally and financially is important to the hospital. Tell us from the beginning, like where did where did you start studying uh, in college and medical school, and, and how? What do you think got you to this point to take over a program at such a young age? Well, it helps if you're going to be the leader of something. You know, you know, being a chief. You know that that term didn't even get used as it refers to me until a few years after I got here. But when there's nothing here yet, you know, when you're the first to something. It's literally like the Wild West. I mean, back when the settlers were crossing the plains and sticking stakes in the ground, you know, when we came here in 2015, there was really no comprehensive heart failure care for Kansans. Uh, there was a very, there, there was and is a very good heart transplant program across the state line uh, here in Kansas City. Um, but there are state line challenges that make that difficult to imagine how every single patient in Kansas is going to get the care they need. So to be fair, uh, you know, being chief is sort of the easy thing to do when you're by yourself. Uh, it's a much harder thing to do when I've got eight faculty members like I have now. I've got seven or eight nurse practitioners in the heart failure space. We've got two surgeons, you know, we've, and we, we, we sort of, you know, it means something more now. Um, but back to your question, you know, kind of what's my story. I, I grew up on the farm towns in Nebraska. Um, didn't really know much about anything outside of Nebraska. The first time I got on an airplane was when I was 17 years old. Our vacations were basically campgrounds uh, in, you know, in North Dakota, or we'd sometimes make a trip out to Colorado. Um, I still love going out to the mountains. Um, and then, you know, went to college at Nebraska, um, you know, land of the Cornhuskers and Cornhusker football. I grew up when Nebraska football was really a dominant thing in the news. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, that was the culture I grew up with. Um, I sort of stumbled into med school is honest truth of the story is, um, I sort of found myself at the university of Rochester in upstate New York, uh, because my brother, uh, had a Bosch and Lom scholarship. He was there as an undergraduate and that scholarship somehow found its way to our tiny little town in Nebraska, uh, Milford, Nebraska. And so because he was there, I applied and I was rejected or waitlisted by every medical school, including my own state school. Um, and then it came down to, I got off the wait list at my state school and I also got off the wait list at uh, Rochester. And because our family didn't have a lot of means, it turned out that there was enough federal, uh, there was enough financial aid for me to basically go to either school. It was going to cost the same. So I looked around and thought, you know, maybe I should get out of here and check out the rest of the world. And Moved to upstate New York, um, and then I, again, sort of stumbled on this guy. He's a giant in the field. His name is um, Dr. Arthur Moss. He's passed away a couple years ago, but was my first mentor. Um, and uh, if you know anything about Dr. Moss, he is the guy who is the lead author on basically every contemporary ICD trial, all of the made-it uh, ICD trials. And so he got me involved with clinical uh, research and helped me get my first publication. Um, it's still my, highly, my highest cited paper in my career uh, from 2007 in the Journal of American College of Cardiology. And then he said, you're going to go to Mass General. That's where I trained. Um, Dr. Moss was also famous for training the space monkeys uh, back in the NASA days. <laughs> so this guy knew everybody and uh, he worked till he died. He was, we don't actually know, I don't know how old he was when he died, but he was, he was up there. 
um, was very active um, but all throughout his career and to his eventual death, which was a very quiet uh, passing. And then uh, when I was in Boston, I had a great training at Mass General. Um, and part of the reason why I left Boston was because they, at the time, this is 2010, uh, there wasn't a lot of embrace in that city for the, the rise of the mechanical circulatory support devices. It was not really, they weren't really frontline as a city. Um, and Mass General, I think, was still waiting to kind of get involved in that space more aggressively. And I was really intrigued with what was going on in mechanical circulatory support, which was really taking off in that 2007 to 2010 era. And in Chicago, they had fully embraced the, the left ventricular assist device therapies as a city. And so I kind of felt like, look, um, I could stay here in Boston. And this is assuming they would have kept me. I mean, we'll never know. Uh, but I could stay here or I could go to a place that's sort of rising. And at the time, Northwestern isn't wasn't exactly the... The powerhouse that they are today in, in 2009 2010 they were definitely taking off but i wouldn't say they were contesting with uh being a dominant program in the city and now i think they're pretty widely recognized as one of the dominant centers in the nation and in chicago and uh i had a lot of great time there you know five years of train of training and faculty and another part of the story is just they were going through some turnover and so my fellowship year we were recruiting faculty while we were sort of down a number of faculty members. And so my fellowship year was kind of infamous because I kind of got thrown into a lot more responsibility and autonomy than you would expect in your fellowship year. I was the only fellow in the advanced heart failure fellowship at the time. Wow. And so the training was just like, you know, I was taking donor call all the time and, you know, running around, you know, living in the world of VAD and transplant. On one hand, it was awesome because I was learning everything I wanted to learn, uh, felt very prepared for my faculty year. On the other hand, it wasn't the best work-life balance, um, but you know, those really, early years really shaped me. And I think that's, that's sort of how I got to where I was when I was 33, being offered a chance to run my own program, uh, build it from scratch. Interesting. Now, one thing I got to say, you know, um, and I'm leaving in the show notes, you, you have a fantastic uh, Twitter. And for me, because of the character limits longer, a LinkedIn uh, page, you, you put out a lot of amazing content, uh, which, is, which is surprising in itself because you're already very busy. But you find time to, to be a great storyteller, actually. Um, and you put a lot of stuff, you know, not just on the field, but, uh, you know, work-life balances, the, the personal challenges about being uh, a physician at a major program and trying to be a good father, a good husband. So when you were in, in fellowship, were you married at the time? And, and, you know, tell us a little bit about that, because that's something that a lot of doctors struggle with, you know, including, yeah, my, I, you know, my, my father was a surgeon growing up. So I know, I know what that was like. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, those are always tough questions to address, but they're important ones. And so I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. Um, you know, all you have to do is Google her TED talk and you kind yeah. of get a flavor of what she's about. But she talks about how, you know, the reason why, so every human in existence is searching for connectedness and we live in a culture of shame and we live in a culture where people actually don't feel so great about themselves and they really don't feel connected. And I think the technology that we have in society is great. And I obviously leverage technology all the time, uh, you know, including LinkedIn and, and Twitter. Unfortunately, though, these things don't create connectivity. And what creates connectivity in, in, her, in her point is, and she's written about this quite a bit, and I, I, I follow her stories, is the reality is 
people want to be connected and to get to connect to connectedness, we have to be willing to be radically and courageously vulnerable. And so a lot of what you see that I put out there, yeah, I get texts from my friends. I get messages uh, that say, did you really want to put a picture of your kids on LinkedIn? And yeah. I say, look, there's a lot of reasons, but part of it is because we're not robots. And the truth is we don't have these careers that we have without acknowledging that there are people who stand behind our careers, who understand our mission. And our mission is never just about work. And so, you know, without my wife, you know, who I've been married to since the beginning of uh, residency, 2007, you know, she's followed me around with all these places we've been. And we have a a marriage like every marriage. It has ups and downs, has seasons that are good and seasons that have not been as good. And there are real challenges. Um, and then now we're parents of three kids, six, four, and two years of age. And the truth is, you know, parenting is this whole new uh, dimension that for me, until until I was leaving fellowship, basically, I hadn't experienced. And and there are so many plates spinning up in the air between the things we do at work and the things we do at home. And I don't know how anybody balances this well, including me. So what I try to do is just be honest about my life. You know, I put stuff on LinkedIn about my debt. I put stuff up about how much debt I've had. I put stuff up about, you know, this is the thing I've learned from my kids today and how it applies to things at work. I've, I've acknowledged that I'm stepping out of the transplant medical directorship and people think I'm totally crazy. And I said, look, five years doing transplant directorship so I can go do other things that I'm interested in and so that I can be hopefully a better dad. I don't think that's crazy. It's just not what people do at 39 years of age, you know, build a transplant program and then walk away from that leadership role. People think I'm leaving or that I'm going off to some other place. And it's really just about trying to find that purpose in life. And I have a why for what I do at work, but I also have a why for what I do at home. Mm -hmm. And I think what I try to encourage people on social media or on podcasts like this is just to say, you got to be honest with the person that you look at every morning in the mirror. And that's who you need to be accountable to. And are you going to go and go to work and be proud of the fact at your end of life, are you going to be proud of the fact that you wrote 30 more papers or that you got on five more podiums? Or are you going to be proud of the fact that you had the privilege to love some really important people in your life? And, and, and how did you make a mark on the world that you live in to make it a little bit better to create a legacy that lasts beyond your life? Because that's what we all have in common. And deep down in our soul, we have a need to be real with each other and to be connected and to also have a higher purpose for what we do. And, and it's not going to be the same purpose at work as it is at home. And I think that um, sites like LinkedIn and Twitter are real opportunities for people to be honest about that. And if all we do is show the, the kind of, you know, hey, look what I did. If that's all LinkedIn or Twitter is, um, then I think we've become a pretty superficial society. And I think all I'm trying to do is just get the conversation going. And uh, I think that's why people follow is because they see that there's something about this that's a little bit different. And, and, and hopefully I, it resonates with people because it's, it's trying to be real. Um, knowing that social media is still not the best place to be real. Um, and there's a real strategy to what I do. I don't post about everything, but there's categories of things I routinely post on. And one of them is sort of talking about how I try to balance work and, and life. And the keyword is try because it's I fail all the time. But I try to talk about what that looks like. Absolutely. You know, I, I got to tell you that that's what you said is so incredibly powerful. Um, 
you know, and I, and that was, to be honest with you, that was the first thing that drew me to, to your profile and connect with you um, is how vulnerable you were and you, you owned it. You know, for me, my, my family is Middle Eastern. Uh, I have an Arab father and a Turkish mother. So generally very, very strong masculine societies. I grew up on the, on the Mexican border. And the thing that I realized over the years, you know, so I ended up dropping out of medical school, which was uh, a lot of people wanted to put shame on me about that. And I realized, you know, I, I always talk to my wife about this concept of like when we teach kids, like, what is it, what is, what is being a man about? Mm-hmm. And it's not this, you know, I'm a tough guy thing all the time. I think that, you know, one of the things I learned is that to be really, really strong, you have to be willing to show that you're weak. And, you know, for me, it was first talking about when I dropped out of medical school, but I was so uh, inspired and captivated by the things you posted, because I think medicine has this problem um, across the board of just constantly, you know, all celebratory, all strengths and everything. And the idea of showing any kind of vulnerability weaknesses is looked, looked down upon. But in reality, you know, when I speak to my friends who are now doctors and residents, I can't tell you, you I don't know if you've, you've noticed, but I've sent so many people to your posts and profile and it's given them a lot of inspiration. You know, a couple of them who I know were really inspired by your family posts because they were beating themselves up all the time about not being the perfect uh, husband or wife while in residency or training. So I don't think you'll ever know, Dr. Sauer, how much you influenced and, and inspired and impacted other people's lives to read those posts, but the fact that you put them out there and it's gonna live forever. So one day your daughter's gonna grow up and say, you know, early on when this was kind of a taboo thing, my father did the brave thing and kind of released a lot of people of the shame from their families, from themselves by writing about our lives and mm-hmm. trying to teach people like what that means. So I, I can't speak highly of, uh, about it enough. And, and I really appreciate you sharing that. So in that process, let me ask you this as a husband, what, what did you learn? Or let's put it more as a spouse. What did you, what was the most important thing that you learned through this through this process of going through residency fellowship and then getting you know getting into this role um, that you can you can sort of advise others on you have to see you have to see this relationship as a partnership Um, my wife uh, stays home now she's a trained counselor and teacher she's got uh, a bunch of accomplishments that she doesn't get to talk as much about because she's at home Um, when she was in Chicago she took a job. Um, the economy was bad, if you remember, in 2009. I mean, very bad. Very bad. Of, <laughs> problems. So she was coming out of her graduate school at the same time as the economy was really scary. And she took a job very courageously working in South Chicago uh, with um, kids and gangs. Her job was to try to mentor kids. And this is South Side Chicago, all right? All Tough the hair. violence. Um, and here she is, blonde haired, white girl walking into really a community of kids who were in gangs. And she had this 1999 Honda Civic that ended up starting on fire that year. We had to get rid of it. Um, That could barely get through the inner city of Chicago. And she fell in love with these kids and she had a passion for what she was doing. She would have to go to court to advocate for kids who had just, you know, been part of an assault of some other kid in another gang and explain to the judge why, well, this was an assault, yes, but 
the kids were retaliating for the brick that got thrown in that kid's uh, mom's, you know, house. And it's, 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 it's a world that we, most of us don't understand. And certainly with my wife and I, uh, she and I grew up in a very um, whitewashed, you know, very protected kind of, you know, sheltered community that didn't see diversity and, you know, and it doesn't make it bad. It's just the world we grew up in. And so for her to jump into that world, um, all I'm trying to say is that this was something really important to her. And when she made the decision to, you know, kind of stay at home, she did that for our kids and for our family. And I have to recognize that there's been times in our, in our career together where she's made sacrifices that I didn't have to make. And so part of even my recent decisions to sort of step back from some of my leadership roles have been in a sense, just saying, you know, I need to make good on my commitment to you that this isn't going to be just about my career or my goals. She wants to go back to work someday. You know, our kids are so young right now that she kind of feels that she'd like to have them be, become school-aged, all three of them. And we've got a two-year-old now, so we're still a ways from that. But I think that if I'm really going to make good on my commitment to be a partner, I need to recognize that there's going to be some things that I'm going to have to set back and, and, put, and push aside for me too. And so one of the challenges I think with any partnership and including marriage is you have to have reciprocity in how you negotiate, you know, the agenda for your life. What is your family life mission? Do you, do you have a sense of where you're trying to go? Um, because if it's all about the Andrew Sauer show with her off on the side, uh, that's not going to create a egalitarian, you know, relationship built on true love and true reciprocity. Um, and, and to be fully transparent, this has been a struggle for us and it's been a point of conflict and a point at times where I think she's had to find ways not to become resentful to me because it hasn't been balanced uh, over the last 10 years. And so in a sense, I'm trying to pay that back and it's, and I, and I want to, and, and I'm learning, like if we want a healthy relationship for many more decades, then we've got to work on how to make sure that there's there's two people who are prioritized. And so I'm I'm a confessed learner of what uh, marriage is. I am not uh, going to try to tell people that I've got that figured out. I think that if you want to know about how marriage works, ask someone who's been married 50 years and try to dig into, you know, how did you do it for 50 years? Because the truth is I've got a decade, a little bit more than a decade that doesn't make me at all accomplished. And there's been some high seasons and there's been some low seasons. And, um, you know, I think parenting creates another dimension that can be very refreshing and bring a lot of positive things to marriage. But the truth is we don't really talk about this because it feels bad to say, but bringing kids into your, in your life is really hard on marriage. And, um, how do we talk about that? You know, because it, it takes the time that was already so limited and divides it in even smaller spaces. And then to take it on top of that, how do you take time to make sure you lead yourself well and take care of yourself? I, I've said this before on, on social media, self-care is not selfish. And we have to be willing to talk about the fact that if I need 30 minutes of exercise every day, which is a recent thing I've been doing better, that isn't about me taking care of me for the selfish reason that actually makes me a better dad, a better husband, a better professional, because if I don't take care of my body and take care of like the, my brain's need for the correct endorphins and dopamine hits, then I'm going to turn to the bad dopamine hits, you know, and turn to alcohol or turn to uh, work addiction. There's so many things that our brain craves. And if you can fill those cravings with healthy things, uh, I'm learning that's what really what balance is really about is trying to find those healthy 
hits uh, to make us feel purposeful and valuable in our in our in our pursuits, um, as opposed to the, the things that are detrimental and can be destructive. So I don't know if that really helps answer your question, but oh no, it's, it's my best attempt at trying to no no absolutely no no absolutely absolutely. And I think that the most important thing is people need to hear these things. You know, and again, it's it's a lot of things that nobody really wants to talk about. But either as a and I think this is the positive things of let's say social media. There's plenty of negative, but as a society, you know, either we continue going on where each person individually figures this out this this out on their own, or we create this sense of um, um, uninhibited like public mentorship where people can read and and just reading something like what you just said or hearing it is enough to get somebody to say. I never thought about it like that. And I think the most important thing is that with, you know, a, a physician like yourself is that you're helping fit people with new glasses. And when you fit people with new glasses and you see the world a certain way, you can't unsee it again. Right. So the idea that, you know, admitting that you have weaknesses, admitting that you fail, admitting that it's a process that you're always learning is a huge weight lift out off a lot of, sh- a lot of people's shoulders. And the amazing part about this I don't believe in separation of work and personal life because you have to have, you have to be happy in both. Otherwise it's going to leak into the other, but the beautiful thing about this, and I've, I'm sure you've seen this in, in your life and I've seen it in mine is that when you work on it in one area, it, it enriches and nourishes everything else. So your ability to be a good partner with your wife, I'm certain has re- resulted in you being a great leader in your hospital with your colleagues, etc. Would you agree? Well, they bleed together for sure. The moments where things are not going good at home, I'm not the best professional. I mean, there's no doubt. They correlate exactly uh, and overlap. In fact, sometimes when I see people on my team who are clearly having a hard time, I'll say, let's let's talk. And one of the first questions I ask is, what's going on at home? Can we just talk about it? Because if, as Great a leader, as, as exactly, as a faculty uh, mentor to some of the faculty, and, and, I, and I've got other people who mentor me, you know, when things aren't going well at work, sometimes there's something going on at home that, that needs to be privately at least acknowledged uh, so that we can figure out how to help with that. I've seen that a lot of times in my own career and in, and in those who I'm responsible for mentoring, you know, when I just ask them the hard question of, can you tell me what's going on at home? Sometimes you find out that there's some major stuff going on and I don't need to know the details. Uh, and, and that's the other thing is just as we try to find kindness for each other in the workplace. Absolutely. When you look at somebody who is acting a way that you, we can all agree isn't right, isn't professional, isn't appropriate. If you could step back and just ask, is it possible that this has nothing to do with me? Is it possible? Great question. Yeah. Is Great it possible question. that this person is acting this way because there's other things that are consuming how their brain is processing? And, and maybe I can just step back and be a friend. And just it's the it's empathy and it sounds trite to say it means having empathy for others but the ability to consider what it's like to be in someone else's position requires that you actually know their position to actually even consider that and most of the time we have no idea what that person is going through for all kinds of good reasons and privacy and things like that so I think sometimes leadership and and being good professionals and good being good colleagues with each other is recognizing that the Stuff going on at home always bleeds over to the work and the stuff going on at work always bleeds into what's going on at home. You know, one of the reasons why five years for me as a transplant director 
has been enough is because there's a real psychological burden that comes with carrying the load of all the regulatory responsibilities that come with transplant. And the truth is I was having a hard time sleeping at night, worrying about the program like it's one of my children. And that's an honest confession that I've talked about publicly, that I've talked about here, that I've talked about at home. And the reality is it doesn't matter how good of a job we're doing, I'll never be satisfied in thinking that we've done enough as a leader if even one patient is hurt uh, in, a, in a way that could be prevented by me as a leader. And so when, you're, when your name is on the program, you feel this responsibility for everything that happens in the program, even when you're not even there. And what I realized is that this was coming home with me. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would have to go sleep in another room because I couldn't sleep and I'd be waking her up. And she'd be like, what's the deal? And I go, I don't even know how to explain it. I'm just worried and I'm just stressed. Mm -hmm. And I'm just I kind of consumed by the different challenges we're facing as a program. And, and I said, you know, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to get beyond this for as long as I'm holding uh, this sense of responsibility for all of it. And so learning as, a, as an internal review of myself, as a reflection, is that this was going to have to come to an end at some point. And so we recognized that as a family well before my organization recognized that I was going to uh, be doing that. And, and I think that's, that's the bottom line is my, my true boss is the boss at home, which is not just my wife, but it's the boss I look at in the mirror. That's who you answer to. You know, you cannot look at your life as I answer to my employer and that's what I do. No, you answer to yourself first, your family second, and you answer to your employer third. And if your employer and their expectations of you is not in line with your family mission, you're in the wrong place. And maybe you just need to reconstruct what the job looks like for you. That doesn't mean you got to leave. That doesn't mean you got to abandon your employer, but you do have to be willing to have hard conversations and say, this isn't really within the realm of what I'm trying to do. And I think we have to resolve this boundary conflict and figure out how to go from here. Um, because you're never stuck. Anybody who says they're stuck is playing the I'm stuck, I'm a victim card. And I don't know why you got to be a victim of, of what you created in your professional career. You can choose something different, either internally within your own organization or elsewhere. It all begins with your why, your purpose, your family mission. So that's that's how I'm thinking about it. I didn't get there yesterday. This has been a process, and, and so much of my career has been accelerated on hyperdrive for the last five years. I like to say sometimes the next five years, I'd like to maybe go the, the pace that you're supposed to go at 39 and not be in the hyperdrive pace, and, and that'll be an accomplishment in and of itself if I can pull that off. <laughs> no, absolutely, and I, I, I hear you. Sometimes, sometimes it takes life um, to kind of remind you about what's important and I, I love what you said earlier in, in this interview about when you're on your deathbed, are you going to feel better that you published X amount of more papers or went on podium, you know, or, you know, or, or, or the kind of family that you built. And I think that, the, you know, the one thing theme that I've noticed, you know, in your posts and, and I was expecting in this interview is that you have this sense of curiosity and ability to ask very good and hard questions. And I think that the quality of your life is reflected and the quality of questions you can, you can ask yourself, like, will I actually be a lot happier if I go for this position or I do these kind of things? Because those are the questions I think a lot of people don't really want to ask themselves because if they really dig in, they realize that they're chasing things to impress people that they never liked, to get things that they never really wanted. And then they spend a whole life doing that. And they look back at their life and say, oh my God, 
I, I didn't spend any time with my children. I could have been a much better spouse. And I think that especially I'm coming, you know, uh, talking from Silicon Valley, there's plenty of stories here in the Valley of this thing of, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and billionaires about sacrificing family life and everything. That's fine for them, but that should not be the standard that we look to do in, in this country. And me personally, I'm a first generation American. I'm very proud to live in this country. We also have a responsibility as, I mean, you're a father, I'm going to be a future father, uh, not soon, but, you know, soon enough, um, that we have to be good parents and leaders in our community because we're essentially nurturing and developing the next generation that's going to make our communities better, make the world better, et cetera. And so that's part of our responsibility. It's not the selfish responsibility of just individual, uh, individual goals and career, you know? So I think that the way you discussed and combining those things is, is really quite inspiring. Um, I do want to shift and then just, you know, cause I, I think it, I, it's something that I know that a lot of people are interested in hearing more about, but you know, talk, tell us a little bit about some of the big things that have happened uh, at KU's program. I know that in the year of COVID, I think last month you guys did over 23 heart transplantations, which is remarkable, but Talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you, you guys did in the program. What's what's your vision for it? Yeah, one of the things we're proud of here is we didn't know what was going to happen with COVID, just like nobody knew. Um, and just like every program across the country, when, when, when institutions stopped doing elective procedures, we did as well. The pandemic had not really reached Kansas or Kansas City the same way they had reached the West or the East Coast. And so here we are in March and April, shutting down elective procedures, shutting down clinics, converting everything to telemedicine. At one point, we had 90% of our encounters uh, wow. in the ambulatory space converted to Zoom meetings. Um, huh. And we were able to do that because we were already doing telemedicine. We have a large state uh, geographically. And so with our, with our outreach efforts, we'd already been doing telemedicine and we were ready to go. This, the pandemic just converted the, the financial and economical uh, gears that needed to be converted so that this could be, you know, scaled. And, and I am very proud of our system. We scaled up to telemedicine within two weeks, really. And that was system-wide. That wasn't just cardiac. It wasn't just heart failure. It was every disease, every specialty was all in on telemedicine. And then we did it like everybody else did. We shut down our elected procedures. We stopped doing just about everything but emergency care because nobody knew what was going to happen. But we sort of sat around here in Kansas and Kansas City waiting for the surge. And it never really hit us at that time. Mm. We're sort of still in it now. We were the final, sort of like the final, the final region of the country to get hit. And we're still being hit. We have still at 11 or 12 percent uh, test positivity rate, which is still higher than what they see a lot of other places. Um, and so we've never really had this big surge, but we've had this kind of smoldering burn uh, that has never ended. And yet we've had to learn how to do our work. And so some of the early signals, unfortunately, showed that what we suspected, which is patients were avoiding care with heart failure. They were avoiding care with their, with their heart attacks and their myocardial infarction. There was sudden death rates. We saw this in New York. There's a lot of deaths that weren't COVID deaths that were deaths due to avoiding or delaying care. And so we realized pretty early on, I would say by mid-April, you know what, we got to get back to work. We can't really just sit here and wait for bad things to happen. So we started proceeding. And I think that it was courageous of our teams to recognize that there are safe ways to deliver care. 
while in the middle of a pandemic. And so in May, we did five transplants. In July, we did five transplants. In August, we did four transplants. We've done seven to 11 VADs every month uh, this time. You know, we're now at a point where we've done, I think, just shy of 40 VADs and just shy of 30 transplants, and we're in September. And this is a program that last year did 23 transplants and 40 VADs, give or take, uh, for the entire year. And mm-hmm. so I think part of this has been our, our courageous charge toward, you know what, the patients still need care and they got to land somewhere. And what if they land, what if they don't make it to us? And so if they're going to be here, we're going to take care of them. And, and not one transplant patient has contracted COVID. We had one patient who, yeah, we had one patient who contracted COVID as she was about to get transplanted and we were able to safely delay her transplant, let her kind of recover make sure she tested negative. And then two weeks later, we transplanted her. That's so unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Had, yeah. So innovation is required here and courage and being willing to take on the team load because the, the big struggle we're facing now is the volume has somewhat exceeded our capacity as a team to feel like, to feel at least like we can really, you know, always feel like we got all our hand handle on all the pieces that are firing. But the system has continued to provide the resources we need and we continue to have exceptional outcomes. Uh, we're very proud here at the University of Kansas Health System that we still have the nation's lowest length of stay for index implant hospitalization for the VAD, as well as index hospitalization for the transplant when you look at all the Vizient um, peers on academic medical centers. And people have asked, how are we doing that? And that's a complicated question, um, but there's a lot of strategy that goes on. And we believe that when you set the patient up for the implant or the transplant with the right kind of setup, Uh, the surgical outcomes are more likely to be successful and the long-term outcomes are likely to be more successful when patients go home earlier with less complications. And initially, a lot of people said, well, you guys are small and you're not really doing that much volume and you're just, you you know, more resourced than your volume. And so that's how you're doing it. But when you're getting into the 50 VADs a year and 30 to 40 transplants a year volume, you're now in a combined volume in the top 10, 15% in the nation. So it's kind of hard to say that we're cherry picking our way through good outcomes at this point. You know, it's really something special about our team. And that's, that's what we're trying to get the message out about. Yeah. And I think, you know, one, you know, and I see, again, I, it's not just you. There's, there's, uh, you know, Dr. Carter, Dr. Wallace, Dr. Flynn, there's people that I've spoken with at Kansas and, you know, at least paying attention online what I love about the culture that I've seen so far in, in KU's medical center is very, very entrepreneurial and startup. And part of it is just a sense of curiosity of how we can do things better. And I, I hope that more medical centers can be inspired by that because again, you know, in the startup world and in, and in Silicon Valley, yeah, there's plenty of uh, companies where you can say, Oh, they have more resources. They have less and everything, but the best part is to put those things away and say, yeah, maybe those variables are, are at play, but, we're still curious, how is this company or this person executing on these things? Because you can always learn. And the mental model you have in your head, even if it's 99% right, there might be that just 1% you can get from somewhere that just adds and makes it better. And I think that Kansas is a great example of, of an institution doing that. Well, we have a culture here that I think we, we were mission focused. You know, Our mission is to see every patient in Kansas and the Kansas City Metro have access to the very best heart failure therapies available anywhere in the world. And, and that's on my website, that's on my social media page. I talk about it all the time. And so when you have a mission, when you have a why, you let that guide everything you do from down and below as to how you how you structure your teams and then also what projects you take on. So if you look at the things we've done in innovation and research, remote monitoring has been an area where we've been national leaders. 
We're the number one enroller for the Pivotal uh, Guide Heart Flare Study uh, with Abbott on Cardiomems uh, in terms of total enrollments in both the single arm and the randomized arm. We hope to see data coming out in 2021 with some of the preliminary results from that trial. Um, you know, people didn't expect us to take that space, but we did. And we did because it fit our mission. Our mission is to cast this wide net over the state of Kansas and remote monitoring is great technology for us to leverage to help our patients. Um, you know, we're looking at innovations in the in the acute uh, heart failure space. We've been one of the first sites to do um, the innovation in, in looking at central venous hypertension, looking at how cardiorenal syndrome works. You know, partnering with Naveen Kapoor, who's who's most well known for door to unload with the Impella mechanical circulatory support device, and and much of what he's doing in the basic science space in that. But, but we also are one of the first studies to implement an early feasibility device, um, you know, looking at the Precardia device, which is really an innovative way to look at mechanical unloading in cardiorenal syndrome. I know we've been talking with you guys at Pertrero about some opportunities looking at what's going on in the bladder and looking at uh, the different technologies in the cardiorenal space. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovation and sort of where our niche is sort of um, not necessarily at the primordial stage or the bench stage, although we do have some bench research going on in my group now. Um, we're excited about doing pragmatic, you know, real world questions that fit our population, that fit our mission. And then we try to scale things that other people maybe not have the appetite to scale or programs ultimately don't know how they're going to scale. And, and one way we do that is since we're such a team focused group, you know, we sort of kind of decide as a group what we're going to take on. And if we take it on, we tend to be able to scale in ways that other centers can't quite easily do because we're all kind of rowing in the same direction. Um, and that's sort of, again, another thing that makes us unique because how do you do the things we've been able to do um, in Kansas where there hasn't historically been as much resources? There just, there just aren't. This is, you know, a very, um, you know, Medicaid here in Kansas is like the poorest Medicaid in the country. It's up there. You know, we don't have bottomless pit of cash. Uh, we don't have the ivory tower brand uh, at this point. Um, so how are we doing this? I'll say it in one word, team. We actually sit down and come up with an agenda as a team without a dictator telling the team what we're gonna do. And people kind of say, you know, let's find consensus on this and we'll go do it. And then we say, since we agreed we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this and we do it at every level. All the physicians in my group, all the nurse practitioners, the VAD team, the transplant team, we kind of row together. We're like any big family. We have our fights and our conflicts and our spats and we have our personalities and our personality borderline personality disorders that anybody can have, you know, but we've got, we've all figured out how to kind of work around that and, and come together when, when big decisions are about to be made. That's really, really inspiring to hear. And I think, again, you know, I, I, I think I keep going back to it, that there's this startup uh, mentality there. And what I mean by that is, you know, I love that you use this idea of team because, you know, my, my greatest mentor, who is a giant in this world of surgical robotics, uh, he, was, he was at Intuitive Surgical in Missouri. His name is Chris Sells. You know, his thing when it came to team is that he wanted a very diverse team in terms of people who have a bias towards leadership, people who have a bias towards finances, towards marketing. So then when you have all these people looking at one problem, you have a variety of ways of solving it. And, and I love that you guys are able to do that at KU because without the oversight of, let's say, you know, you know, executive, you know, uh, influence or anything, people have the freedom to really say, 
what what might be a good idea and there might be someone who's very junior who sees that one thing that everybody is, else is not perhaps seeing and i think that's really valuable um we we have we're, you know i'm trying to be very uh good on time because i know that you have you have meetings so we got a little about you know 10 or 11 minutes left so what i would like to get into because i know that if i don't get through some of these questions my audience is going to be really upset with me so we have this rapid fire question so i'm going to ask you a question you can answer it as quickly as you'd like, or you can take as long as you'd like for it. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah well, okay. I'll try to be quick since it's rapid fire. <laughs> yeah. So, so the first first question is: you mentioned your 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 great great mentor, who's who's a, a giant in the field of cardiology. What was the most painful yet memorable thing he's ever told you? Well, <laughs> I've got a couple mentors like this, but in particular, he was willing to tell me that I wasn't cutting it. You know, he was willing to tell me the hard critique, you know, get out the red pen and paper. Uh, and, you know, so how many rounds of manuscript review I went through for that first paper in my career, which is still my most cited paper, is probably my best paper I've ever written. I, I would give What was that paper credit. called, by the way? Uh, Long QT syndrome in adults. I'll it's leave that really, in the show notes for people to look up. Yeah, 2007 in Jack. And it's an important paper because it's the first time that the adult subset with a, a, a not a rare, totally rare genetic disease, but, um, you know, long QT syndrome is, is relatively uncommon. But it was the first time the adult population had by itself been looked at and described in terms of how patients do based on their genotype and their phenotype. Anyways, the reason why I reference this is because that paper must have been revised 50 times over a summer. And he could have done the easy thing. He could have, it would have been much easier for him as my mentor to say, you know, let me just take this and finish it and we'll get it across the finish line. But he forced me to continue to address his problems with my writing style or with the way I was approaching the presentation of the data. And I was a second year medical student, right? So I had- Oh, really wow, no you weren't even a resident. Yeah, I, I had no idea what I was doing. And and so it would have been much easier for him to get this. He knew this paper was going to be important. It was his paper, but he forced me to take ownership of it, to be accountable to it. And to take that first author position, he expected me to do the work. And so good mentors not only see you for what you could do and see you for your potential, but they walk you through how to get there and go to the next level. And they don't tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you need to hear. And so... You know, I can reference Chris Newton Che at Mass General. I could reference Sanjeev Shah at Northwestern. These were two other people who, same qualities. They would just not accept me for being mediocre when they knew I could be excellent. And, you know, and, and, and if you're going to be mentored, you have to be willing to be humble enough to take those kind of critiques. And sometimes they can be scathing and, and can be harsh and can, can even leave you in a, an emotional distraught position for, for a few hours. But that's the best thing you can get from your mentor is the hard truth. And so if you're asking for advice for how to find a mentor, find someone who'll tell you the truth about yourself, who sees you for your value, but asks you to go that much farther and shows you the way. Those are the people that you have to attach to. And, and if you look at me as a success, and I don't know that that's the case, but if you look at me as a success, ask yourself, how did he get there? And I'll tell you, mentors is how I got here. And listening to the people in my life who gave me the hard advice I needed to hear and really taking that into consideration because that's how you, that's how you rise in, in this society where people are constantly shaming and putting guilt on you or telling you 
things that are really based on their agenda, not, not what's best for you. You got to be very careful with the advice you get. So find the right mentors and you'll find a pathway. Absolutely. And I, I'm just going to reiterate what you said about, you know, the, the importance of finding mentors, especially for all the medical students and residents who are listening and some of whom I'm talking and trying to guide a little bit, get on LinkedIn, get engaged and be seen because you can get access to some of the greatest mentors you, your wildest dreams can think of just because you're on there and very few people decide, Hey, I'm going to message them and see if I can get them on the phone for just five minutes for advice. I think that's such, such a good, good guidance. So next question I have for you um, is what book do you gift to other people most often and why? Um, the first 90 days is one of them. Um, and I think, you know, that is a great book. If you are transitioning in the leadership role, um, or if you're changing settings, or if you're changing leadership role, uh, there's a lot of really pointed advice coming out of Harvard Business School, basically, you know, talking about the science behind what defines success in leadership and how the first 90 days of any leadership role, uh, you have to have a different strategy than what you would beyond 90 days and certainly by, beyond whatever position you're in. Um, another book I like is, um, uh, you know, in terms of gifting, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, some of Simon Sinek's stuff, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of finding why, um, again, Brene Brown on talking about, um, you know, dare to be brave. And these, these are the kind of things that I would, I would recommend. And I, I, I like to read a diverse type of, uh, of collections. You know, I think it's good to pick up a few classics on occasion right now. I'm rereading the old man in the sea, you know, and oh, uh, the, 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 the long drawn out story of reeling in a giant <laughs> fish. Um, and, and then reading about how Ernest Hemingway actually lived that life in, in Cuba you know, and there's a lot of symbolism in that book, you know, and, and again, people think, oh, what can I learn from a classics? But I, I'm a big fan of picking up a couple of those. Um, you know, Peter Drucker, I'm a huge fan of his work and a lot of the stuff he did um, as one of the fathers of management. And he has a lot of good one liners, you know, and, and things that aren't necessarily his, but I think he made big and made branded like, you know, first things first. I'm a real big fan of that, you know nothing is really more important than the first thing. The second things are second for a reason. And so really, if you just fill your day with first things, you know, there's plenty of those hanging around and you'll be able to organize your day uh, in a more logical way. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a great, I'll leave these, uh, the links for some of those books in the show notes, but yeah, uh, I think reading is such an important thing. We, we benefited uh, both you and I from learning how to read very effectively and efficiently through medical school, but I think it's such a powerful thing. And I mean, I'm talking to you from my library. There's so many books that I purchased and read many years ago that I got something out of and I reread them and I got a whole lot out of it. So yeah. they have that magical quality. So my last question for you before you go is this. I want you to imagine that throughout the United States at every single hospital, there's going to be a billboard for a whole year. And every single person that goes into that hospital nurses, doctors, residents, patients are going to see this billboard. What message would you put on that billboard for that entire year? And this would just be for my institution, for every institution. Sorry. I every every single one. So this is your opportunity to um, seed an idea and, and, and inspire action throughout the United States in the medical community. What, what, what would that billboard say? Hmm. Take your time. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough question, but take, take your time to think that one. 
Honestly, I think it would be, why are you here? Um, I think we spend a lot of time in the weeds, um, in our team meetings and our decision-making meetings um, when we're even in the bedside care uh, discussions that we have, where we're talking about sort of the how and the what and the details and the facts. But at the core of every hard decision needs to be the why. And so if you're a patient, you see that billboard and you see, why are you here? Patients should be asking, you know, what am I trying to get out of this experience? You know, it helps when you talk to your physicians and your nurses and your care team, if you know what your goals are as a patient. And equally as important, it helps when you're trying to talk to patients uh, about what you can do for them. There's so many times where you're like, are we doing this to you or are we doing this for you? And at the core of that detailed question is the why. You know, not everybody has the same goal uh, not everybody wants to live longer. I, I spend a lot of time with people who die, who have bad heart failure, who don't want a transplant, don't want advanced therapies. They don't want to be in a trial. They may not even want to take some of the common medications. That doesn't mean that they're weird. They just have goals that are different than other patients. Mm. And so just being able to ask that question, why are you here? There's something really global about that, you know, that I think as you're walking into a, a, you know, into a hospital or into an institution, if you see that, you think, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What am I trying to get out of this meeting or out of this encounter? Because um, I just think I'm, I, that's something that's really important to me is asking people why. You know, I, I like that word. I like that question because the motivation for doing things is sometimes just as important as doing things. Or not doing things. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's a simple question, but definitely simple questions reveal very simple solutions to very complicated problems. So I I, I love that. Um, I couldn't think of a better way to, to wrap up. So um, I'm going to leave in the show notes how people can find you. I know that your last name is spelled S A U E R, so people can find you on LinkedIn and on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Andrew J Andrew J Sauer at yeah at, at Andrew J Sauer yeah. Got it's it. Just my full name. Perfect. We'll leave it in the show notes so people can follow you and and, and check out more of your posts and content. Uh, We really appreciate you coming on on and sharing your story. And and we're looking forward to seeing you produce more inspirational content and things that really help change the way people think and view the world. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Some of the questions uh, were a little harder than I thought, but uh, it was a lot of fun being able to talk today. So thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I know we're going to have to have you back on soon. So definitely do that. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.